Today we're talking about the candle of salvation. Basically, we're talking about the very reason Jesus came to earth. And see, I love to celebrate Christmas. I love to celebrate his birth. But his birth is meaningless without the death and resurrection. And so anytime I celebrate the birth of Jesus, my focus deep within my soul must be on the death and the resurrection. It can't just be the birth, because if it is, then I'm missing actually why he came. And I love the beauty of the candles and the lights and the tree and all of that. And some people will have said, well, don't you think it gets too commercial? And I'm like, listen, it's the same thing I say about pastoring a church in Seattle when people go, isn't it hard? Isn't it one of the least church places in America? And I go, yeah, I can't imagine anywhere I'd rather do it. Because at least here, I know what I'm dealing with. It's much harder in the South to me where everybody's a Christian but nobody lives any different than it is here where nobody claims to be and everybody lives different too. So at least I know what I'm dealing with. A light shines a lot brighter in the darkness. And so is it difficult? Yeah, it is. But isn't it beautiful at Christmas? Isn't it great when people will say Merry Christmas to you, whether they understand at all what they're saying or not. And what if they do say Happy Holidays? There is more than one holiday. I'll take it. I'll take basic human decency any time, and it does not negate the reality of what I celebrate. And I can't be offended that somebody doesn't know. I say, like when parents like, are embarrassed because their kid did something, I'm like, never be embarrassed because your child acted like a child. They're supposed to. Your child is supposed to act like... Now, if they're 33 and still doing that same thing where they throw themselves on the floor in the store because they don't get the thing they want, well, then we've got an issue. When a child acts like a child, you don't have to be embarrassed for that. So if somebody says happy holidays to me, that's fine. They say Merry Christmas, that's great. Let's remember that there's a reason behind all this. So that was all just a precursor to what we're going to talk about today. Had nothing to do with my message. (laughs) Psalm 146 Starting in verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, and he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Three things that we see in this passage on our salvation. And a lot of people don't even realize that this is a salvation passage. But what it's saying is this. There's a reason and there's a hope. And you are blessed because you have the very presence of God with you. The idea of blessing has been distorted in our Western culture. I don't even think it was intentional. I think it was a lack of understanding. But in the Old Testament, anytime it says blessed, it's referring to the presence of God with somebody. So when they say, and Abraham was blessed, we, a lot of people look and go, oh yeah, because he had all that money and all that wealth and all those people that worked for him. But in reality, Abraham was blessed because the presence of God led him on a journey. And when you change your mindset from everywhere it says blessed to, oh, I have something, to, oh, God is present with me, it changes my perspective. Well, I'm not really blessed because I don't have what that person has. Or, well, I'm so blessed because I had a good parking spot at the mall. Um, No, 
I mean, I'm glad you got a good parking spot at the mall. I'm a capitalist at heart. I've talked about that. But that's not what blessed means. Blessed is the presence of God with us. So blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. In other words, the, the presence of God is with you. Don't you understand the beauty in that? So three things we want to see in this passage on salvation. First off, it should create a sense of peace, not a sense of worry or fear or anxiety. I've known a lot of people who don't want to go to a church because they're afraid they'll feel guilty. They'll feel shame. They'll feel embarrassed. And I always say, why? You're no better than, but you're also no worse than the people that are here every week. We're all sinners and we're all striving to be more like God. And though we may be redeemed and cleansed, you're still a sinner. And it tells us that the very heart of man is evil. I think that alone qualifies us as a sinner. We're evil. And yet, we have a God who looks at your evilness and he goes, I got a plan for you. I got something more for you. I've got a plan that's going to help connect you, the evil, broken sinner, to me, the God creator of the universe. And here's how that plan goes. And he lays it out for us. And he wasn't lost and he wasn't confused, but he offered a way of salvation because we can't do it on our own. And too oftentimes, we think we don't need it because if I'm just good enough, smart enough, rich enough, powerful enough, if I'm nice enough, if I do enough good stuff for people. So we try to make our own path to God when he says the path is simple. Things we see, salvation should create in us a sense of peace. We're not better than anybody, but we have a hope that those that don't have that relationship don't have. You want to know why the world seems so lost? Because the world is hopeless, because they don't know the truth, and those that have heard it don't believe it, walk it out, and live it out. We have something for us that we should be letting the whole world know. And again, I've told you, it's not beating someone over the head with it. It's living it out in such a way that they want it. The second thing that this passage shows us is he opens the eyes of the blind. Do we see the truth and reality of who God is? We live in a broken world. But the reason this world just keeps struggling and stuttering and sputtering and seeming like it's getting worse and worse and worse is because they don't see the reality of who God is. And the moment they begin to see that, the moment they begin to understand who God is, then they're going to begin to understand that there's hope for them. But the church for so long has been about what we're against and what we don't like and what we hate and what we and the reality is none of that reflects who God is. What reflects God is when I love my neighbor as much as I love myself which means i got to love myself in order to reflect God. When I begin to give of who I am, not just what I have, but who I am to those around me so that they can discover and experience and encounter God in a real way, that doesn't make it easy. Those of you who are married know it's not always easy to get along with your spouse. Those of you who are parents know it's not always easy to get along with your children. Sometimes they don't listen to you. I'm in that awkward place where I have kids who are a certain age and I still feel like I gotta try to direct them, but I also have parents who are doing things that I'm like, what are you doing, mom and dad? Don't do that. Stop, don't, don't. And I, I felt like when I was there at Thanksgiving, I'm like, it's a good thing I'm not here all the time 
Because I think I go nuts with the, don't, stop, what are you doing, don't. And they're oblivious, and yet I'm working on arranging things for them and doing things for them, and I'm like, I didn't know I was going to be a parent to my parents. (laughs) And yet I'm called to love them and honor them. Once my eyes are open to the reality of God, it changes how I view them. It changes how I view my neighbors. It changes how I view my family. It changes how I view my friends. Third thing in this passage is he's watching over us. This is not God's watching you so that he can get you. And I've heard that so many times that people believe that God's just waiting for me to mess up and then he's going to get me. Nowhere in scripture do we really serve a God who's waiting to get you. There's times where we see things that happen and it's called justice. There's times where we see things happen and it's called righteousness. But he's not waiting to get you. He's not looking for you to mess up. He's watching us so that he can be a presence with us in our time of fear, pain, trouble, anxiety, isolation, hopelessness, depression. He doesn't say those are you being bad. He says, let me come into that place with you. Let me enter that dark place with you and be present for you. Here's some things that our salvation does not equate to. Our salvation does not equate to perfection. Just because I've got the salvation of God does not mean I am perfect. I said it a little bit ago, you're a sinner and you're evil. It says so in scripture, both of those things. But it says that there's hope because I'm a new person. I'm not just washed up and cleaned up. I am new. I am by the renewing of my mind. I'm made whole in him in the areas that I lack and I'm broken. And the struggle we have is, why does God let bad things happen if he's a good God? Because he gave everybody free will and people don't choose to do the right thing. And I oftentimes get mad when I see bad things and then I go, well, but if left to my own devices, I'd probably be the very same way. Salvation does not equate to I can live however I want. Grace is free, but I'm called to be set apart. We, as a people, are called to be known by our love. It says in Scripture, it's his kindness that leads us to redemption, not the judgment of the people around you. It's his kindness that leads us to redemption, not the condescension of the Christian. So if that's the reality, then aren't I supposed to, as the representative of God, aren't I supposed to reflect that kindness that he has called me to, to show and to share others? It's not the, oh, they offended me, so I will never allow them close to me again. Sounds like judgment. Again, I've told you, if you are in a relationship where somebody is hurting or abusing you, They don't have the right to do that, and I will help you find the way out. But at the same time, at the same time, we're called to forgive people, and I always say, forgive and forget is the dumbest advice ever, because you won't forget, and if you don't forget, then that means, oh, I must not have really forgiven them, and you beat yourself up. I would say the healthy advice is forgive and release, and I release them of any guilt, 
That doesn't mean I have to let them back into my life and be right next to me again where they can hurt me again. But it also doesn't mean that if somebody hurts me once, I judge them forever. It means I forgive and I learn to set healthy boundaries, but I also learn to love that person again. And that releasing, that takes all the burden off of me. I'll forgive, I'll release, and now the burden is off of me. I don't have to keep carrying it around. Now I might have to deal with the pain. It's the same thing. Emotional pain is the same as physical pain. I broke my foot when I was in high school, and um, I had to do a bunch of rehab. And I was like, it's one little bone in my foot, but the rehab would be so painful. And I had, to, I had a cast on for a while, and then I had a walking cast. And the way I broke my foot, they were concerned with how it broke, that if it didn't heal right, that I would walk with a limp. And so we do all these things to take care of the pain. We do all these things to deal with it. The problem is emotionally, we've experienced brokenness, and we don't really deal with the pain. We don't do the rehab, we don't do the therapy, we don't do what we need to do to get whole. And that pain is there for years. And you're walking with emotional limps because you didn't deal with it when you needed to. When you were 16, when you were 12, when you were 7, when you were 38. You just, okay, well, I'm just going to stay away from that person. I'm just going to avoid that situation. But there's all this pain still. And that pain leads us to not be able to have healthy relationships later on down the line because the pain was real and we never really dealt with it. And I'm here to tell you today, the hope of our salvation is that we can deal with it and we can be free from that pain. But we still have to deal with it. Our salvation does not equate to comparison. If somebody else is a better Christian than me, and I've tried, we do this. Why even bother? I'm not going to be as good as them. So we give up because it's difficult. Or we take the other tact. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And they say they're a Christian. They're a leader of this ministry. They're in this church. They do this and that. And, you know, they have all this influence. And look at how they treat people. So I guess I'm just better than them. That's not true. We're all just broken people trying to make it through, trying to love God, trying to serve God, and we have good days and bad days. Our salvation does not mean we have to compare or that we're being compared. God doesn't look and say, I like this one better than that one. I've told you before, I don't use the term good Christian or bad Christian. People say, well, I guess I'm a bad Christian because I haven't been in church. I'm like, no. It's not how it works. It's not a sliding scale. You're either a follower of Christ or you're not. You're not a good Christian because you come to this or you serve at this or you do that. And you're not a bad Christian because you don't. Now, do I believe our lives reflect where we're at with Jesus sometimes by how we serve? Absolutely. But I don't think God's looking at that. I think we do that because we're supposed to reflect that to the world around us. When I go down to transform Burien, I don't do it because I'm better than somebody else. I do it because I have opportunity to serve somebody else. And I need to reflect who I am in Christ in that way. But I'm not better than or worse than. And you have to stop comparing yourself. You have to stop thinking in terms of, am I a good Christian? Am I a bad Christian if I don't do this? No, you're not. 
Because when we compare ourselves, then all I got to do is better than the other guy. It's the old joke I say when you're outrunning a bear. You don't have to be faster. You just can't be slower than the other guy. Right? If there's three of you, just don't be last and you're okay. And that's how many of us run our spiritual walk. I may not be the fastest, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. We can't live our lives like that. That's not how God has called us. We're free from that. And if I start living my life like that, the problem is I do it in my own sufficiency. I'll just take care of myself instead of how do I connect and love and serve. So here's my questions for you today as we walk out. Number one, do I believe that salvation is for me? I've met many people who go, well, I could never be saved. You have no idea what I've done. And you're right, I don't know what you've done. And I can tell you my story and I can tell you how I'm a sinner, but I can't take away your own self-judgment. I can't. You have to decide that you, as a human, are worthy to be loved by a God who says he loves you. But I can't make you say that. It's like I can't make you experience something. I can only tell you my experience. And if you've never experienced and never seen it, it's sometimes hard to grasp. So the second question I ask is, if I believe I'm worthy of salvation, is this what my experience has been like with God? That I believe that I am blessed, literally, by the very presence of God simply because I exist. And if not, what blocked my view of that? What blocked my view to see who God is? To see that he looks at me and says, you, you are worthy and I love you. Was it things people said to me? Was it things people did to me? Was it things the church has done to me? What is blocking my view of understanding that God loves me and desires relationship with me? And the third is, can I trust God enough with my life to really give it to him? To give him my life? Well, I give it over. Because if I do, that means I can't keep holding back the anger and bitterness that was from things that were done to me. I can't keep blaming others for where I'm at in life. I have to stop doing certain things if I'm really going to give God control because that means he's going to look and say, I love you exactly as you are, but I'm not letting you stay the same. I'm going to change you and shape you and push you and press you, not because you're not worthy, but because I see you as so much more than you ever see yourself. You label yourself by your worst act. You label yourself by the worst thing you've done. You label yourself by how great you once were. And he sees how great you can be. And he says, there's something more for you. I've got something more for you. And I'm telling you, I want you to see that. I want you to grab that. I want you to cling on to that. I want you to know that God desires a relationship with you. God desires a personal relationship with you. He is the God of our salvation. And it's not just for us corporately. This is a promise for us individually. This month, we really set aside each week to remember 
the beauty of the promise of righteousness, of joy, of love, of peace, of justice, of salvation. But that all exists because Jesus came as a full human who also still had the full divinity of God. And people have asked me to define and explain that, and I say it's one of those undefinable things. It's an undefinable quality, but it makes it no less real. And faith is never easy. Faith stretches us, it pushes us, it presses us. But we're not supposed to have all the answers. We're supposed to believe that there's somebody greater than us that has those answers. We're supposed to put our faith in the living God of the universe. And it takes exactly that. I can't give you proof. Proof is not what faith is about. Faith is about trusting that there's something greater than myself. And you can't fill it with any drug. You can't fill it with any alcohol. You can't fill it with any job. You can't fill it with any future goal. You can't fill it with anything. And so we're on this quest to not feel that emptiness. And then we experience God. And then we go, well, sometimes I still feel empty. Yeah, because we're still trying to make it about us instead of about who he is. Let's walk in him and begin to discover and experience him in a real way. God, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for our congregation. I thank you for our community of faith. Make it more real in our lives. God, for anybody here today who says, I want that. I need that. I want to experience what he was talking about. You've never experienced that connection with God, that moment of salvation. I want to invite you in just a minute to come up. We'll have people on both sides that want to pray with you. If you say, I'm not sure I'm ready for that that's okay. Come up and just talk to them. I'll meet you for breakfast in a couple of weeks after you have time to think about it. It's a journey. It's not a one-time thing. But God, I pray that if there's anybody in here experiencing that today, they have the boldness to speak up. God, I pray that you would meet us right where we are, in our emptiness, in our brokenness, and in our lostness. Let us see you. Let us experience you. I pray that your kindness would continue to call to us and tug at us to be drawn to you. Let us know you in a real way. In your name, amen.